I don't end in time. So can I have a super, super fast reader come up to the front at this time? Uh, not really, but uh, we are, that's what we're going to do tonight, God willing. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ezekiel chapter 40, before we begin, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you so much that we can just open up your word and go through the Bible, and there's always a word in there for us, Lord Jesus. You say in the book of Luke, last chapter, in that wonderful Bible study you had on the road to Emmaus, that that uh, just all the law and the prophets are all pointing to you, and how much so the Ezekiel in the last nine chapters. I just pray, Lord, that you would show us a piece of your heart this evening. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me, Lord, this evening, not be a distraction, but rather be a blessing. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Ezekiel, what a wonderful book, the book of Ezekiel. Oh, thank you, thank you, Sean. He's giving me video game toys here. What a wonderful book it has been. Again, the, around the first 30 chapters of Ezekiel, he is prophesying in a very similar way to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Ezekiel, 900 miles away in Babylon to where the, many of the Jewish people had been exiled. Prophesying, look, you guys need to repent. In a way similar to Jonah when he went into Nineveh. Look, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Unlike the Ninevites, the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem did not repent. And we saw in chapter 33 uh, the message coming in to Babylon, to where Ezekiel and Jews were living, saying, this city has been destroyed. And it wasn't as if they didn't get many warnings. God had warned them, not only through the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but also through uh, just warning signs. Nebuchadnezzar had come in one time and uh, sort of taken control of the city. He got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the prophet Daniel, took them back to Babylon prisoner, ransacked the city, came in another time, about something like 10 years later, uh, did a similar thing. And so there were warning signs, but the Jews were so stuck in the cycle of sin. They were so convinced because they owned the building. What was the building? The temple. That God would never, ever destroy their city. But you know, it, it happened. He was true to his word. He destroyed the temple. The king was captured. He actually had his eyes plucked out. The last thing he saw before he had his eyes plucked out by the, the Babylonian king, this 
pagan king was his, uh, his sons were put to death. Can you imagine how horrible? Just speaks to the cruelty of the time. You still see, still see that kind of cruelty today, but uh, it was commonplace at that time. And just the, the Jews are in great mourning. A third of them had been killed a third of them had been exiled. A third of them had been spread all over to nations of the world. And so they were in this incredible season of discouragement. And it was in that incredible season of discouragement that one of the most amazing chapters of the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 7, the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel is taken by the Lord to a Valley of Dry Bones. And the Lord makes him walk right in the middle of the bones. And in this incredible chapter, God breathed his life into the bones. They took on human form, skeletons, then they took on their flesh, and then they took on breath. And, and it, what it represented was the nation of Israel at some point in the future would be regathered as an independent nation. And so after that, in chapters 38 and 39, there is this incredible prophecy about kings or a prince from the upper north, an empire from the far north, rather, who would come soon after the nation was regathered. Of course, we know that happened in 1948, right? And there would be a tremendous battle at that time. And so with the, they've actually identified, the, the, the scholars have, the, the cities over which this prince of the far north had control. And some of these areas were in, are indeed in modern day Russia. And so it's getting people awfully uh, excited when you see... Uh, these alliances, these anti-Israel alliances that Russia is making with Iran, some of the other Islamic country, the, the cooperation with Syria, it's everyone in the world is against what's going on by the Syrian government now, except for, of course, one country, Russia, and, and, and so, which is an arch enemy of Israel. And so it's hard to know the details, it's hard to know what the timing is, but um, you see this prophecy and it really makes you wonder. Then, in chapter 40, through the rest of the chapter, you have, uh, you have a prophecy of the rebuilding of a temple, but these chapters are shrouded in great mystery. And I'll talk a little bit about why. Actually, in the Talmud, which are extra-biblical writings around the time of Jesus, the rabbis claim that this portion of Scripture, these last chapters of Ezekiel, will not be understood until Elijah comes and explains them to everyone. And in, in Malachi, there's a prophecy that Elijah would come right before Jesus returns. Now, Jesus says that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, but um, there's also this prophecy that he will return before the actual re second coming of Jesus. But um, so many, many different opinions about 
about what these chapters meant. And I mentioned this this morning, that in spite of the mystery, in spite of the difficulty figuring out exactly what it means, I tell you, as I dove into this, and I, I prepared for this sermon <laughs> far more than any other Sunday night sermon ever, and that wasn't just because it's nine chapters, but just because it's, it's not easy. You really get, when you dig into it, there's just part of you that feels like you've been touched by the Lord. It's like, wow, there's something profound about these chapters. So with that, in verse one of chapter 40, and I'm not gonna read every single verse of the last nine chapters, just, just bits and pieces. It says, in the 25th year of our captivity. And for those of you who are keeping track, that's 573 BC. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. Uh, and it says, in the 25th year of our captivity. And remember, the reason the math doesn't add up, 586 Jerusalem was destroyed, but some of the, ca- the captivity actually began before that. Remember when Daniel and, and other Jews were taken captive in, in Babylon. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, In the 14th year after the city was captured, meaning Jerusalem, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. So he goes back to Jerusalem. We have seen this before. Uh, We've seen Ezekiel uh, be taken up in a vision uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem before. We saw it in chapter 8 where he went back to Jerusalem where this, in the spirit, where the Lord showed him, even though he was in Babylon, the Lord showed him what was going on in the temple and terrible things were going on in the temple. Just like today, terrible things are going on in some churches, terrible things. And the Lord showed him all these sort of pagan things going on right inside of God's temple. And then, he, and then also in chapters 9 and 10 of Ezekiel, um, he was taken back to Jerusalem and, and he saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. Well, here we go again. It says, verse 2, In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it towards the south was something like the structure of a city. Now that's very Ezekiel-like, right? Remember in chapter one, verse one, uh, verse uh, one, where it says, "Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the f- fourth month, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God." And then he went on to describe the visions of God, the cherubim, the wheels, and he kept on saying, "And then something like." he would say, uh, and, and then he would describe uh, verse 27, for example, chapter one, I, I saw the appearance of, of his waist, uh, a, a creature's waist, and I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it, and uh, from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and brightness um, all around. Actually, that wasn't just a creature, that was, um, a, an, it appears to have been a thief Theophany, uh, uh, an appearance of Jesus uh, prior to his his coming in, in the flesh in Bethlehem. But so, he, same thing happens here. 
But this time he sees something like the structure of a city. Now, keep in mind the people are tremendously discouraged, but they get this prophecy about the regathering of the nation. Uh, And here they are going to get a prophecy of a rebuilding of a a temple. Verse 3, he took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. So in addition to this being for us today, it was for this people, a very discouraged people. Verse 5, now there was a wall all around outside the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubic and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall, of the wall structure, one rod and the height, one rod. Then he went to the gateway, which faces east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. And then he goes on in verse 7 to describe the, the gate chambers. And there's, there's this man who he's with. It's, it's some, some kind of angelic creature measuring out uh, what is a temple. And that, that's what's uh, going on here, a, a, a temple. And uh, in verse 16, 17, it says, Then he brought me into the outer court. And there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. Thirty chambers uh, faced the pavement. So he's describing uh, chambers and rooms in this temple. In verse 38, there was a chamber and its entrance by the gate ports of, uh, um, gateposts of the gateway. They were washed they w- where they washed the burnt offering. Verse 39, in the vestibule of the gateway, were two tables on this side and two on the other side on which to slay the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. Verse 41, four tables were on this side and four tables on that side by the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifice. So they're talking about animals being slaughtered here. Verse 44, outside the inner gates were the chambers for the singers in the inner court. So there, was, there, there were going to be singers in the inner court. In the temple, David had instituted singing as part of the worship, actually 24 hours a day. Uh, amazing. So anyway, in verses 38 through 41, alarm bells go off to any kind of person who is a serious student of the Bible. And what might those alarm bells be signifying? Anyone? Really quick. Anyone? If this is a prophetic vision of a future temple, why, why all the sacrifices? Exactly. So hence, there, there's, there's, there's these references to sac- animals being slaughtered for sacrifice, uh, trespass offerings, sin offerings. Uh, what's all that about? In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is homely, uh, homely, not homely, holy, 
harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests were to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for his people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. Once Jesus went to the cross and was sacrificed, no need for these offerings anymore. And so what's up with all these offerings? Well, you say, well, it was the, it was the temple. There was a temple. It was a temple in Jesus' day which was made when the 70-year period of the exile was over and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, they went, they went back, they built a temple. The problem is this temple, the measurements of this temple and the measurements of that temple are night and day. Night and day. Uh, it, it, no similarity whatsoever. There is another temple that the Bible is, says that actually God is going to have nothing to do with during the tribulation. Uh, it, but but um, obviously the tribulation period is a future period, same problem. Um, you could say, well, they have sacrifices then because God has nothing to do with it and it's just the Jews rebuilding a temple. But, but, the, yeah, yeah, but the thing is, again, the measurement's completely different. This is a temple that God gives excruciating detail about. And so some people read this, many people read this and say the whole thing is like a spiritual picture of... Of, of the time when Jesus will be reigning again and it's not actually going to happen, but it's sort of representative of a time where Jesus sort of, he takes the place of this temple. You're never going to have this temple. But the problem with that, it's one, the excruciating detail. If that was the case, why? When we'll get into some of it, why so much deep de- detail? But it, that doesn't really explain why the sin offerings. Now, the things that make this temple, what, some of the things that make this temple so unique are there's no Ark of Covenant. No Ark of the Covenant in this temple. There's no high priest in this temple. There are priests, and we'll see that, but, uh, but there are, are no high priests. Uh, there is no showbread. There's no menorah. Most significantly, no veil. The Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, with the, 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 the veil was split in two. There is no veil uh, in this temple. So what is it? <laughs> I personally agree with the people who say that this temple is going to be a temple in the millennial reign, but it's going to be, it's going to function similar to how the communion, the Lord's Supper functions today, where we take the cup, which represents the blood, we take the bread, which represents the body, and it is a remembrance. And during the millennial reign, this will be another remembrance to people, a remembrance to people that, wow, 
This is what Jesus replaced. Now, again, we'll get to heaven someday. We'll get all the detail. But I think there's some strong arguments for that. I've already listed some. There's no Ark of the Covenant here. There's no mercy. There would be no, actually, we're going to see Jesus is going to himself in this temple be in the most holy place. He's going to replace it. And that is, that is very well defined in here. You know, we're, we're, we're going to see that, that Jesus himself, the Lord, it says, will be there uh, himself. Uh, but, you know, again, no veil and, and no high priest. The Bible says that Jesus is, becomes our high priest. So uh, the, the idea here is in the millennial reign, there will be this temple where people will come from all over the world and see sort of the machinations of these offerings. And it's going to be a reminder to them of the necessity of believing what happened on the cross. Now, do we have, you guys are, you're definitely working overtime tonight. Did you get all my, my can we put the, the end times timeline here? So, the, so under this particular interpretation of the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, this temple would be constructed from here to here. Now, quickly, one of the strengths of this argument is that keep in mind that everyone who makes it through the great tribulation, it appears, will be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's going to be the wrath of God taking care of just judging, you know, at that time. During the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be many people born who will need to be born again. So at, at the time of the rapture right here, which is seven years before the physical return of Jesus, Everyone who's raptured, of course, is born again. The Bible says, Jesus says, that they're going to return at this time to live and reign, reign with him. And that in addition to those who are there who were raptured, there's also going to be the people who lived during the Great Tribulation, put their faith in Christ, and come in and, and are living here, all born again. But in addition to that, many people will be born during this thousand-year period. What's up with this thousand-year period? Well, it's specifically mentioned in Daniel that when after Jesus returns, there's going to be a thousand-year period. And then after that, there's just going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There won't be any necessity for anyone to be born again because everyone will. But one of the confusing, intriguing time, uh, things about this millennial reign is that they will still have to be born again here. At this point, at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says that Satan's going to be unleashed one last time. There's going to be a rebellion, and then that's it. New heavens and new earth. So during the millennial reign, many new people born. The Bible says in Isaiah 65 that longevity of years will return during this time. So if you remember in the first few chapters of Genesis, people living to five, six, seven, eight, how long did Methuselah 
whatever, 900 and something. That's going to happen again in the millennial reign. It says if a baby dies when it's 100 years old, Isaiah 65 says, it will be considered a curse. So this is the time, a time of great, great peace. They will be coming all over the world to Jerusalem where Jesus, Messiah, will be reigning. Remember, Jesus promised that he would come back. There's no question about it. As in the book of Acts, he ascends to heaven. Everyone's looking up into heaven. Two angels say to the people looking up to heaven, why do you look up like this? The same Jesus who you see leave like that is going to come back the same way. So he's coming back, and a literal interpretation of the Bible, this is what it looks like. Now, it's possible that a portion or all of this is allegorical. I think that's really difficult to have an allegorical interpretation of, um, uh, uh, of these kind of things. It's much easier, a literal interpretation, but a literal interpretation, this is, this is what is going to go on. And so people will be coming to Jerusalem. They will need to be converted themselves and... Seeing the temple will be one of the things that will really strike people. Now, remember the Old Testament sacrifice that the, that the priest put his hand on an animal and the person did too, and then the neck was slit and they'd see the blood. Now, why all that gore? So people will understand the gravity of their sin. And that's one thing we miss today. That, that, you know, I, we have preachers have to stand on our heads up in front of the churches trying to convince people the total depravity of mankind. Well, there wasn't one advantage <laughs> living in, in Old Testament times and being a part of the temple. When you saw that blood come out right in front of you, man, was that a reminder of the gravity of our sin? So, we need to move on. Chapter 41. So the idea is that it's remembrance. Verse, four, uh, verse 1 of 41 says, Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorpost, six cubits wide on one side, six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. And, and then verse 4 talks about the most holy place. And so interestingly enough, uh, he's, um, he's measuring off the, the most holy place. Again, never see an Ark of the Covenant. We'll see it a later time Jesus himself is going to uh, go in there verse 16 the doorposts and the beveled window frames lots of detail here I don't know how you would ever spiritualize it but uh, some people do and it says and the galleries all around there are three stories opposite the threshold so this temple is three stories another huge difference between this temple and every other temple this temple is three stories Verse 17, from the space above the door, even to the inner room, as well as the outside on every wall, all around, inside and outside by measure, and it was with cherubim and palm tree. So on some of the doorposts, this type of thing, it's actually detailing, similar how it, it does with Solomon's temple, some of the very detail, the palm trees, the cherubs, which are etched into the wood. On one of them, verse 19, so that the face of a man who... Uh, was toward a palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward a palm tr tree on the other side. So you see the detail there. By the way, 
In Acts chapter 21, verse 26, Paul, the Apostle Paul, of course, well after Jesus had been crucified and ascended into heaven, what does he do? He goes to the temple and he makes a, offers a sacrifice. Now, did Paul, you know, think that he, in order to do something about his sin, he had to make a sacrifice? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. It was a remembrance. So, you know, that, that is an, another argument that, look, Paul did it. And, and so there is some precedent uh, there. Some precedent there. So a remembrance. God knows how our tendency to forget. That's why we have communion. We have a tendency to start thinking in a performance mode rather than a grace mode. But when we take that cup, which represents the blood, we remember it's only by the blood of Jesus, not how good or bad we were last week that we come into the presence of God. Chapter 42. In chapter 42... Let's just go to verse 13. And then he said to me, so Ezekiel's following this angelic creature all around. He was measuring out this temple and the wall around the temple. He says, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. They shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, for the place is holy. And it's interesting here, you see the, uh, a reference there, they're going to approach the Lord, verse 13. It appears yeah, that it's a reference to the actual Lord being there. Now, in, in Exodus uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, the Lord says, I will commune with them above the mercy seat. But there was just, there was a fire, a cloud there. But it was not the Lord himself there, physically. But we're going to see here in Ezekiel, and there's a reference to it, that the priest actually will be approaching the Lord himself. So a contrast to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, where it says, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Very uh, uh, different. It, the, the cloud was, um, you know, the Lord was there, but not physically. It says in chapter 43, now here it starts getting really interesting. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, he's going to come in the east gate. And behold, the glory of God, of, of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. He's going to enter through the, eight, uh, eight, the, the east gate. This is the Lord himself. Now, this is quite dramatic because if you remember in Ezekiel chapter 9, when Ezekiel had been taken back to Jerusalem, this is before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Ezekiel was actually given a vision of the future in which the glory of the Lord, God of Israel left the temple. He left the temple. It says um, 
in, ch- in chapters 9 and 10. It says in 10 verse 4, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, paused over the threshold of the ch- uh, temple and the house was filled with a cloud and the glory the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory Uh, but then in 18 it says the Lord the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and um, and so here in Ezekiel chapter 43 this was meant to encourage the people. He, the temple is not only going to be rebuilt, that, that Jesus is going to come into this temple. Verse 3, it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. So that's, remember, at the very Ezekiel chapter 1, that was he was by the captives at the river Chebar when he sees visions of God. He sees the cherubim. He sees the wheels rotating. Uh, and, and he sees an appearance of Jesus. That's what this is a reference to. So interesting things have happened with the east gate uh, in Jerusalem. It's the only gate today that is sealed. Every other gate has been opened. It was sealed by the Turks in the year 1517 when they came in and took over. Some believe... They, they speculated, like, why did they seal just that gate? Some believe it is because they don't want the Jewish Messiah coming back, so they, went, they, they sealed up the East Gate. Right outside the East Gate, they put a Muslim uh, cemetery, which they actually have found the bones to, and the thinking there is that no good Jewish man would defile themselves by walking over this cemetery. And it says, for in the glory of the Lord... Um, the glory of the Lord, verse 4, came into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. And I love uh, Psalm 24, which says this, speaking of the gate and the Lord coming through the gate. It's a prophetic song. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. First time Jesus came, he came lowly riding on a donkey. The second time he's going to be coming strong and mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Verse 5 of Ezekiel 43, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So he's having this vision of this temple that's being rebuilt in the future. The glory of the Lord, Ezekiel had seen it depart. Here he's seeing it come back. Then I heard him, capital H, speaking to me, from the temple while a man stood behind, beside him, beside me. And he, this is Jesus, said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. So he is actually going to be in place of the Ark of the Covenant. No veil this time. Priests go in to see him. Um, and it says the soles of my feet. Very different than a, you know, a cloud over the mercy seat. The soles of his feet will be in this temple. 
where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Verse 10, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement. So again, remember, this is being spoken to the people at that time in the land of Babylon. And so the people are discouraged, but they're given this vision of the temple and the hope is is that those people then in Babylon would repent and turn to God. Jerusalem's been destroyed. So is the temple. Time to repent, guys. We told you repent before. Repent now. Verse 18, and he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made. And so it has um, a a, a seven-day just different, uh, this is, I believe this is consecrating the temple here. Uh, Verse 22, the second day, verse 25, every day for seven days, verse 26, seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so um, consecrate it. So they're consecrating the temple. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offering. So they consecrate the temple, and then the burnt offerings begin. So there's going to be this, this temple rebuilt, and then the offerings will begin, and they will be for a remembrance. For chapter 44, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces towards the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Kind of interesting that it was sealed up by the Turks, but it's be, no one was allowed to go in and out of this temple after, after it's, it's, this, this whole thing is rebuilt except the Lord himself. And then it says this. As for the prince, because he is a prince, he may sit in it to eat the bread before the table. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway. Verse 4, he, it says, also he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and its laws. Mark well, who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious house of Israel, thus says the Lord, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to defile it. Remember, before the temple was destroyed, they had defiled it in every conceivable way. They had even brought in uh, images of foreign gods, brought it right into the temple. And so, again, part of the message here is for the people living at that time specifically. It says, verse 11, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers. Now, here on out are a series of rules for the priests in this temple 
that is, we think, going to be built during the millennial reign. Verse 18, they shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Now, this is similar to the the clothing in the book of Exodus. God doesn't want any sweating by his priests. And that's a sermon in and of itself that when we work for the Lord, we're not supposed to be sweating. We're not supposed to be doing it in the power of our own strength, even though we always do. And the Lord reminds us we're supposed to be doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, verse 20, they shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. <laughs> so that's how the priests are going to be there in, in this temple. Verse 23, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy. So there'll be a teaching ministry in this temple. Verse 25, they shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Now this one's really, con- this, is, this is hard. Why does God care at some time in the future if a priest comes near a dead person? This was indeed a law it's a law of priests, for priests, and also actually for Nazarites in the Old Testament. But why on earth? If Jesus Christ has paid the offering, why would this be? Again, the one argument is this is, it's all for a remembrance here. This is what, so they're instituting some of the same rules and ordinances for priests so that the people would remember that Jesus has fulfilled all of it. So very clear, this is a different temple. No Ark of the Covenant, no veil. It says Jesus, a physical Jesus is going to be there. You can actually, will see his footprint. Chapter 45, an intriguing chapter. It's about a holy district that's going to be just for, the, for Jesus himself, but also for the priests, also for the Levites. Moreover, when you... Divide the land by lot into inheritance. You shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. So this is like a, kind of like the District of Columbia. I don't know that you would call it very holy, but um, this is the, the similar type of thing. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all along. And so... Uh, you have this district, and this district is actually divided into three. The Levites are in a part of it. The other children of Israel are, are, are part of it. The priests are going to be a part of it. Actually, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to be uh, in part of it. It says in verse 7, the prince shall have a section on one side and the other of the holy district and it says, it says in verse 8, the land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes, plural, shall no more oppress my people. Verse 9, that says the Lord, enough, O princes of Israel, remove violence and plundering, execute justice, righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people. Now go over to verse 21. This is a description of the offerings of these princes. It says, in the first month of the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten, and on that day the prince shall prepare for himself 
and for the people of the land, a bull for a sin offering. And so we've had this discussion on Sunday night about who this prince is. Uh, we had this discussion a, a couple weeks ago. The idea here is this prince, because this prince, there's a reference to his sons. This is some kind of, of mayor, this governing authority. The Bible does say that there's going to be a governing structure during the millennial reign. The fact that this prince is offering for himself a sin offering can't be Jesus. It's, it, it, it's got to be some other governing authority here. It says in verse 25, in the seventh month of the 15th day of the month at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. So no high priests. That's really interesting here. Although the, one of these princes has a function of helping out with, with offerings. Uh, little interesting tidbit here. You see a reference in verse 21 to the Passover. You see a reference in verse 25 to the Feast of Tabernacles. No reference to the Pentecost. Now remember, there are three times a year. Every Jew, according to Old Testament law, was required to show up in Israel. One, for the, feast, for the Passover. Two, for the Pentecost. And three, for the Feast of Tabernacles. We see here two of those three. It makes sense that the Passover is still here as a, a sort of as a, as a remembrance. As a remembrance. The Feast of Pentecost, uh, rather the Feast of Tabernacles, um, also a, uh, a remembrance of the wanderings of the children of Israel uh, in the desert. The Feast of P Pentecost is not here. It is believed because the, the Feast of Pentecost was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 by the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the, birth of the church. It has fully been fulfilled. No need for as much for a remembrance in the same sense as, as the Passover and the wanderings. Who knows for sure? Maybe it's a coincidence it doesn't mention the Feast of Pe Pentecost here. But there is three, there were three uh, feasts that the Israelites were required to be every year and the one is missing and so people speculate that's just because it's been fulfilled by the church. And so there will be no need for people to, to have that memory of the, necessarily of, of, the, of the Feast of Pentecost being fulfilled, but when it comes to the, the Passover and that sacrifice, similar to the remembrances of this whole temple being built, it, it, it's an important remembrance as well as the Feast of Tabernacles, which represented those years of wanderings in the wilderness where God says, look, I don't want you to forget the time you wandered in the wilderness and I took care of you, so I want you to build little tabernacles by your homes. And still, during the Feast of Tabernacles, to this day in the fall, you can go to Miami Beach where there's a lot of Orthodox Jews and see their little tabernacles by their homes. They still do that uh, to this day. Chapter 46, we're going to do it. We really will. What's that? Chapter 46, verse 2. The prince shall enter by the way of the vestibule 
it actually says, verse four, the burnt offerings that the prince offers to the Lord. So one of these princes is gonna be involved in the offerings. Uh, it, it says in verse nine, it says, but again, talking about the temple and the temple worship and the festivals, there's gonna be all these remembrances for people coming all over the world to Jerusalem. But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. So they leave by a different way. Some people see some symbolism in there. You know, when you come to church, you're not supposed to leave different. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall be go the way of the north gate. So no, no, notice how no one goes through the east gate. Why? Only the Messiah comes in by the east gate. We, we just read that in a previous chapter. He shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out the opposite gate. So there's a description of the actual worship that is happening. And then in verse 10 on, more offerings for the people that the people are actually offering. Verse 15, they, the people who come, shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. Now, scholars say, well, what's up with that? Because burnt offerings in the Old Testament were how often? Anyone ever remember? How many times a day? Twice, morning and evening. And here, you only have it in the morning. Uh, And so, uh, not sure why, but again, big difference between this temple and this worship schedule. The feasts are different. And we'll see in a, a, the next chapter the way that land is allotted in Israel, different. It's all different. Verse 19, just an interesting reference here to kitchens. For those of you who like c- cooking, now he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which faced toward the north. And there was a place, uh, there was a place was situated at their extreme western end. And he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Verse 24 These are the kitchens. You thought that word wasn't in the Bible. It is. It's right here. These are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. You know, and all this time, I haven't even put up, there's a diagram of this temple. Can we put that up? So here are the kitchen, 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 kitchen. So here's that eastern uh, gateway that Jesus is going to come by. So they've just mapped this whole thing out. Very interesting, these storage chambers here. Are you, I, I believe they're unique. There's 30 of them. We, we, I, th- I believe that we read that verse uh, before. Here's the inner court, the most holy place um, as well. So here's, I believe we already read a, a, a reference to this as well, the priest's uh, kitchen. Here's the priest's chambers where they go in and they dress and this kind of thing. Another interesting thing is that it appears that each time the priests uh, work, they put on clothes, their clothes here. They do their work, but then they return into ordinary clothes and w- when they return to the people. What's the significance of that? You tell me after the service. I'm not sure. But it's just, it's sort of a different economy, a different thing going on here. 
Chapter 47, very famous chapter. In addition to the dry bones chapter, probably, maybe, all of you have heard reference to this. It says in chapter 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water. So remember, this is all a vision and, and this, he has this angelic guide, you know, guiding him all around. And it says, this, at this point, he brings him back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the f- threshold of the temple towards the east. Hmm. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out of the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. Now, if you do a word study on that, it appears that it's trickle or dropping. A trickle of water running from underneath the temple. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, this is this funny guy, this line in his hand, walking around, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Verse 4. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. And then the water came up to my waist. And again, he measured 1,000. It was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. And then he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living creature that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live where the river goes. It shall be that the fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Eglium. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salts. Along the bank of the rivers on, the other, uh, on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Thus says the Lord God. I'll stop there at at verse 12. So in this rather famous passage, uh, you see here that 
in this vision of the future, he sees a trickle of water coming from the temple. Now, as you read this, it's a little different than I had always sort of read these 12 verses that the man took him from one bank of the river and just crossed to the other side. But as, as you read this, that's not what's going on. They're actually sort of, have you ever traveled like in a stream or like right up a stream? You walk in it in some places. Uh, I, I believe a couple times just growing up in South America, it, we actually lived near the Amazon basin. There would be jungle areas where you, the only way you could travel was inside a stream <laughs> because the, the, it was just so dense and you sort of had to sometimes travel right in the middle of it. And so the idea is here, it, it starts off as a trickle and it grows. And at the very beginning, it's just a trickle. It's just ankle deep. Uh, but then as he goes and, and, and this man is taking him in the stream after another thousand cubits, it's up to his waist uh, and uh, rather up to his knees. And then another thousand cubits, it's up to his waist. And, and then another thousand cubits, it's, it's just too deep for him. And so there have been many, you know, many sermons about this, but look, this is just a confirmation of, of what we see from cover to cover in the Bible that from Jesus Christ flows forth life. It's the very, it's just the very principle of, of, of life. And, you know, now the reaction of so many people reading this, and it's a, it's a good reaction is this is how I want to be. I just want, I don't want the, the Holy Spirit, um, I don't want me controlling the Holy Spirit or controlling God, you know, kind of when it's at your ankles, it's sort of you're still in control, but, you know, when you get it so deep, it's the Holy Spirit controlling you, not the other way around. Not really what the concept he, uh, here appears to be. The concept here appears to be as we grow in Christ and as we walk obedient with the Lord, we will become more and more a vessel free to have the Holy Spirit just pour through us. That appears to be more the imagery of what is going on here. You know, and, and it's true. Because as we grow in the Lord, and, and I've said this many times, you know, as we grow, as I grow in the Lord, I, I sin less, but I repent more. You know, we, we, we sin less, but we repent more. We're more aware of our sin. But over time, as we grow in the Lord, we really do let go uh, of sin. And, and, and you guys know this, five years into your Christian life, all of a sudden you're aware that something is sin that you never really recognized before. It'll happen till you die. It, it will. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years into your walk. You, you know, this is not okay. And I've been doing this for 40 years. And, and the Bible says is that as, we, as, as the vessel is cleared, the Holy Spirit just flows. And there's this just wonderful, and, 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 and just the, the fruit multiplies over time. But this is a wonderful picture of, of, 
of fruitfulness. It, it just, it's expanding and it's just going out like this and the Holy Spirit really over time just completely controlling. I just love being around people who have walked with the Lord 20, 30, 40 years and, and, and man, there's just such a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and, and they just, man, they, 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 they're such a vessel uh, of the Lord. And so, uh, you know, an interesting thing here, this is a little literal river though now there is no river flowing through Jerusalem and in it does say though when Jesus returns in Zechariah 14 it says in that day in the day that he returns ah that's not the the chapter that I'm looking for it's another chapter in Zechariah where he steps anyone know where that is on the Mount of Olives, and it splits open. A tremendous valley is created, uh, and a, a tremendous valley is created, and uh, where is it? I had it here. Oh, yeah, it is Zechariah 14. And in that day, his feet, this is uh, his return, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. So there's going to be topography, is that the right word, changes in the area, which by the way is going to be necessary because this temple is one square mile, one mile by one mile by one mile. It would be impossible today really to do it in the way that this is described because of the hills and stuff. A valley is going to be created. A valley is going to be be created. By the way, one thing that I forgot to mention, this whole thing about a temple where there's actual sacrifices in the millennial reign. It's not just in Ezekiel where there appears to be these references. There is also references in the book of Isaiah. Uh, There is a reference in the book of Micah. There is a reference um, also in the book of of Jeremiah. Let me see if I can uh, quickly if I can find a couple of those of those references here. Where are they? So in the book of um, in the book of uh, I lost it here. It's in the book of Micah, chapter 4. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Many nations shall come and say, come let us go to the house of the, uh, 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 of the, of the Lord. Uh, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of, of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, he will, he sh- we, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. He shall judge between many nations and rebuke strong uh, nations. Um, It says, in that day, it says, all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. It says, in that day, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcasts. Ah, that's not the verse I was looking for.
So there's a reference in Isaiah, there's a J Jeremiah, there's, there's Micah. I can't find it right now where these references are. Oh, they were right here, right in front of my eyes. So there's, there's, there's one reference, for example, in Isaiah uh, 66, if you're taking notes. It's j chapter 66, uh, verse uh, 20 through 23, appears to be a clear reference to uh, sacrifices uh, in the temple during the millennial reign. In verse uh, 20, it says there, uh, it says they shall go, it says, and it shall come to pass that from one uh, new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh come to worship uh, before me. It appears to be a reference to a temple there. In, in verse uh, chapter 56, and chapter 56, verse 7, it says, apparently referring to a temple, even then I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Uh, a, a similar thing in uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33, 18. Uh, he's, he, uh, speaking of the branch, it says, the, and, and the return of Christ, it says, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a burnt offering before me, and they will sacrifice to me continually. So anyway, another reference in, uh, actually in Zechariah, not Micah, Zechariah 14, verse 16, and also Malachi, uh, uh, references to offerings at a temple during the millennial reign. So anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Ezekiel uh, this incredible picture of the river uh, and there are these other references in the Bible uh, as well to rivers uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem during the millennial reign, even though there's not a r river there today. It says in Joel chapter 3 verse 18, and it will come to pass on that day a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. So a very similar prophecy about a fountain flowing from the house of the Lord and water in the valley of Acacias. And so, um, yes, the, uh, just a, a, a reference there. The... Okay, so in, what's the time check? What is the time? What's that? 8.14, okay. So I will do this in just a few minutes. I will do this. Then, in the remainder of Ezekiel, starting in verses 13, really to the end of the chapter, you have a division of land really for all of Israel. And there's actually, again, it's, it, 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 it's 
rather mysterious. The tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel are given a portion of land during the millennial reign. So there will be a little Israel with tribes of Israel repopulating. You know, how you find someone from the tribe of Dan, I don't know. God knows. But they are actually going to regather into the land. And they actually have a specific sections of Israel where the 12 tribes are going to be apportioned. And I want to quickly put up the, the, the map of these 12 tribes here. Very odd. So this is why, this is why people read the, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel and go, what's this all about? These rectangular sections throughout the land of Israel. This is, this is what, if you were to map out the last two chapters of Ezekiel, 47, 48, this is what the tribes look like. This is, let's turn to the other one, uh, the other map. This is what the 12 tribes looked like at the time of, of, uh, of David. So one more time, back to these tribes. And, and here we go. Here's the, the tribes in the millennial reign. And, and again, Israel, a literal Israel, um, it, it regathering. And so, look, a lot of, the, I just encourage you to, uh, to go into these chapters yourself and, and dig in there. You can pull out some uh, commentaries. Uh, the very last verse that we will read, chapter 48, verse 35, which is the last verse. This is really interesting. Jerusalem will get another name. It says, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. It's because Jesus will actually be there. Isn't that heavy? The Lord is there. Now, Jerusalem means what? It means Jehovah Shalom, peace. The Lord is peace. But it appears that in the millennial reign, there's, it's going to have actually a different name, and that is Jehovah Shama, which means the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So that's it. That's the last eight chapters, nine chapters of, of Ezekiel. Kind of shrouded in mystery, but again, as you dig into it, there's that sense that you're, you're, you're just being touched by the Lord, that, wow, there's, there's something deep here. The Lord is trying to communicate uh, something uh, to us. And so... Uh, that's it. We will, we will be uh, moving on to the book of Daniel. And uh, we're really excited about Daniel as well. A lot of stuff about end times prophecy in the book of Daniel as well. Right now we are going to, just for the last uh, 10 minutes, uh, we are going to uh, get 